Well, we are come to that time of year where people make goals. Resolutions, we call them. Um, I don't hear a lot about these resolutions when we get to February. Uh, but people try, and that's not a bad thing. We have some goals in our family. Uh, one is kind of a half-serious uh, goal in the negative. Uh, one of our family goals is that we never want to be the kind of family that has to rent one of those huge dumpsters and drop it in front of our house because we've collected too much clutter. Now, if you have a dumpster or you have too much clutter, we're not offended by that. That's great for you. But we just don't want to get to that point. And uh, we've, we've learned that about three little trips to the dump each year will keep us on track to never having to get the big dumpster. The problem is we have one of those wonderful walk-in attics that is just a great place to put clutter. So, of course, we put it all up there. And uh, about three times a year then, we need to go up into the attic and we need to go through our clutter and we need to ask some questions. Now, there are some bad questions to ask and some good questions to ask. One of the bad questions to ask is, who gave this to us? See, we have lots of people who love us that have given us all sorts of things, and if we ask that question, we're on our way to the dumpster. I mean, we'll never, we'll never get rid of anything. So uh, another bad question to ask is, how much did we pay for this? You see, all the wonderful high-priced stuff that you know we buy, of course, uh, eventually is going up to the attic and then out to the... The, 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 the dump. So that's a terrible question. We'll never get rid of anything if we ask that question. There are some good questions to ask. One of them is, are we using it? Or um, could we be using it? And if the answer is yes, then we need to use it. Don't take it to the dump. Use it. Uh, maybe the best question to ask is, do we have a place for it? And if we actually can use it and we have a place for it, then we need to bring it from our attic down into the living area of our house and we need to begin to use it. Now, thinking about this is relevant for where we're going in the scriptures today because there's a lot of stories riding around in our Bibles between the cover of our Bible, Bibles that we haven't read in a while. And as long as those stories don't get read, it's kind of like they're in the attic of our lives. And if they stay up there in the attic, eventually we're going to forget about them and then eventually they're going to go to the dump in our lives one way or another. We need to be constantly going into Scripture and finding these stories, bringing them down to where we live in our lives so that God can get a hold of us and pass these wonderful stories through our lives and and change us. Uh, Our goal here in the next four weeks here in January is to find some of these stories, four of them in the four weeks that we're going to be together in this way. And we want to bring them down and think about them and let God pass them through us and work on us, change us, 
Beware of them. Uh, All of these stories have some things in common. They're all from the Old Testament. They're all from Genesis. They all involve one of the four patriarchs. They all provide a picture of faith from the Old Testament. They all foreshadow the work of Christ. And they're all dramatic narratives. And if I have one big aim for the series, is it's that we at Faith Bible Church would be more engaged Bible readers as we move through this year together. The first of these stories is from Genesis chapter 15, and I invite you to go there with me. Uh, in keeping with my bad habit of always dealing with too much information, we're going to look at the whole chapter Uh, But you'll see that the whole chapter hangs together as one unit, and you'll see in just a minute why it's such a fascinating account. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Would you follow along as I read the word of God? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how shall I know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, 
the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is a very humbling passage to study. Because there's no way you can say everything that can be said, even that you know to say, uh, in one session. There are so many different sides to this passage, and the levels of significance keep going down and down. It's a great passage. Uh, Let's get into it together. We're going to look at it in two sections. Our transition point is going to be in verse... 12. In the first half of the passage, this is, this is what we learn. The certainty of God's blessing to Abraham was possessed by Abraham by faith, in spite of his doubt. We're going to notice that in this first half, verses 1 to 11, there are two exchanges between God and and Abraham, and in each of these exchanges, Abraham is expressing his doubt. In the first exchange, he is doubting something about God. In the second exchange, he's doubting something about himself. In the first exchange, he is doubting something about God in relation to the promised descendant that God had told him he would have. And in the second exchange, he's doubting something about himself in relation to the promised land that God told him he would have. In each of these exchanges, there's a pattern, or there's a pattern that holds true for both of them. They both begin with an oracle from God, something that God wants Abraham to know. Then they move to a response from Abraham, in which Abraham expresses his doubt. Then they move to a command by God. Then they move to a visual aid that God gives Abraham to teach him what he wants him to know. And they both finish with a statement from the narrator of the passage, whom we take to be Moses, writing about 600 years after these events took place. Let's step through each of these exchanges here. Verse 1, God says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, why is Abraham afraid? We need to answer that question. We didn't read chapter 14, but if we had, we would have read about the battle of the five armies. Not the one from the Hobbit. The one from Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the four kings attacked the five kings and they carried off Lot and Abram, who was quite the big guy, by the way, with lots of soldiers at his command, went and he rescued Lot, and he took in a lot of plunder. And then after the battle was over, Lot was restored, and the king of Sodom said, oh, Abraham, keep all that plunder, thanks for your help. And Abraham said, no, uh uh-uh. I'm not keeping anything that I won as the spoils of battle, because God has given me a promise that he's going to bless me, and if I keep all this stuff, then there's going to be a human explanation for why I'm rich. I'm depending on God. And he 
gives it all back. But he's still afraid because these kings are out there and they're coming back to get him. And Abraham is fearful. He's fearful about how this promise is going to work. And, of course, the whole thing takes place against the backdrop of Genesis chapter 12. Remember, God called Abraham out of Ur, and he promised him a land, a seed, and a blessing. And Abraham is waiting, and he's given the reward back (laughs) that he earned through battle. And then, this is Abraham's response, following along, Verses 2 and 3, he says, What will you give me, God? For I continue childless. In other words, I got all this reward. I gave it back. Now what reward? (laughs) What answer to the promise will you give me? And he immediately begins to think about the seed, the promised descendant. And I don't think Abraham here is questioning God as a non-believer would. He's not even suggesting that God is not good somehow. He's questioning the mechanics of the promise. God, I'm getting on a little bit. How is this going to work? Because I'm waiting for this descendant and I've got this servant and he's not from my own body. Verse 4, God responds and he says, Abraham... Your descendant will come from your very own body. This one, he doesn't even name him. This one you're talking about, he's not going to be your heir. You're going to have a a son from your very own body. And here's the command, go outside. Go outside, Abraham. And here we have this wonderful visual aid. Just picture Abraham, he's outside. This is long before there were any city lights to mess all this up. He goes outside apparently on a clear night, and he looks up at the Milky Way, and God has a little fun with him. He says, start counting, if you can. And they one, two, (laughs) look at all those stars. Abraham, these are going to be your descendants, or you're going to have as many descendants as there are stars here. Just trust me. Verse 6, we have the the little statement of the narrator here. Uh, This is the key verse of the whole passage. The New Testament picks this verse up in a number of different places. And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, that's God, counted it to him as righteousness. Really important here, actually, to understand the relationship of verse 6 to verse 5. It looks like in some of our translations, including my own ESV, that Abram gets saved here. It looks like he's believing God in consequence to what God is showing him in the sky. Uh, That's not actually accurate. The grammar rules that out for a couple of different reasons. Also, the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham trusted God way back in Ur in chapter 12. That's when Abraham was declared righteous. Abraham has been operating as a man of faith in God all along. The NIV does a better job of just stating it. Abram believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord. He considered God to be someone who's dependable. And God declared him righteous based on his 
faith or as a response to his faith. And this is terribly significant. Listen to Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ today, you are a son of Abraham, Jew or Gentile. Abraham is the great patriarch, the father of all those who have responded to God by faith. But he still has doubt. Uh, Moving to the second exchange, verses 7 through 11. uh, Here we get an oracle of God again. God says in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now this seems a little strange to us. Uh, Why is God suddenly introducing himself? I mean, he's been talking to Abraham. We're in the middle of the passage. We we know who he is. Why, Why is God suddenly talking as though he had never, or Abraham had never met him before? Uh, The answer is that this is the preamble to an ancient covenant. This is covenant or legal language here. Uh, in, In the ancient world, when anybody would make a covenant one with the other, those covenants would begin with a preamble in which the the partners or the covenant parties would simply state who they were. And that's what God is doing here. He is beginning to make a covenant with Abraham. And and I think Abraham interrupts him. Verse 8, Abraham responds... O Lord God, or Sovereign Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Here Abraham is shifting from thinking about the descendants to thinking about the land, and he's shifting his doubt from God to himself. In other words, God, before you get going too far on this covenant thing, if If you're going to make a covenant with me, that means I'm going to have to do something. How am I going to do what you're going to ask me to do? And how will I be up to the the task? So Abraham is doubting himself. And in response, God gives him another command. Verse 9, he says, uh, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. These animals had to be three years old because they had to be in the prime of life. But bring me these different animals. And then in verse 10, he gives him the second visual aid. And we see Abraham severing the animals. Cutting them up. So this is taking place the next day. Get the setting here. You've had the night sky vision, and now this is taking place during the next day. And Abraham is cutting up these animals, and he cuts up the animals, and he leaves half of the animal here where Dan and Debbie are seated. and The other half of the animal is there where Art is sitting, and he leaves this aisle 
between the animals. And this is really interesting. My my question here is, how, how did Abraham know what to do? If you gave me animals, I wouldn't cut them in half. How do you? How did he know what to do? In our culture, when you make a contract with somebody, it doesn't surprise you, or it wouldn't surprise you at all, to have to sign some papers. Let's suppose you buy a house. At some point in this process, and when you close, you go into a little room and you sit there with a, you know, a lending agent and a, you know, a buyer's agent. Maybe the seller's agent is in and out of the room, and maybe somebody from the bank, probably a secretary, and they bring a big stack of legal-sized documents, 50 or 60 pages, and you just start signing your name. Sign here, check here, initial here. You have no idea what you're signing. Right? They're just telling you, sign, this is what it means. You have to believe them. You can't read all that stuff. And after an, about an hour, uh, you owe hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe, to people you've never met. And in exchange, they let you live in their house for about 30 years. All right? That's the way we do it. We're not surprised to have to go through this. The ancients would be, they would be astounded. Why do you do that? The way they would make covenants was to act out the consequences of what would happen if one of the parties broke the covenant. So if you have two kings, they're going to do exactly what Abraham did here. They're going to cut the animals in half, create an aisle, and the two kings would walk down the aisle together. And they're looking at these animals and they're thinking, oh boy, if I don't keep the covenant, I'm going to be like one of these animals. If you have a lesser king making a covenant with a greater king, the lesser king would walk down the aisle alone. Same thing. Look at the animals. Uh, We know this because of lots of ancient manuscripts that we have. We also have a verse in in Jeremiah 34.18. And the men who transgressed my covenant, this is what God is saying, and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. This was common. This was the way it was done. And that's why Abraham just automatically began to set up the requirements of making a covenant. I love verse 11. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses. Why do we have that little detail? There's probably significance here. There's going to be opposition to the covenant. There's some, the language suggests that. Uh, but I think at least it shows us that Abraham is waiting for God. He had his night vision. That was pretty good. Now he's doing this thing with the animals. Took him all day. He had to cut these animals up. And now he's waiting for God to turn up to tell him what to do. And it's taking a long time. The sun is going down. It's getting late in the afternoon. It's getting toward evening. God hasn't come yet. And Abraham's getting frustrated. And these birds, ah, get away. And he's running. Picture Abraham running around. And now he's frustrated. What does Abraham expect to do when God does come? 
I believe Abraham is waiting for God to tell him to walk the aisle alone. He's going to give him something to do and say, Abraham, this is my covenant with you. Now walk. And this is what's going to happen to you if you don't obey me. Abraham has all that to look forward to. So catch the tension where we are. Sun going down, waiting for God. Second half of the passage, verse, verses 12 through 21. Here's what we're taught. The certainty of God's blessing to Abraham was guaranteed by God in spite of hardship and trouble. Verse 12, back to the story. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This word deep sleep is not the ordinary word for sleep. It only occurs seven times in the Old Testament. It can refer to a deep natural sleep, but it often refers to the state of heightened awareness in which a prophet would hear from God. So God's about to reveal something to Abraham. And by the way, um, the most well-known use of this word is in Genesis 2. Remember who went to sleep? Adam. A deep sleep, the same deep sleep, fell on Adam, and then without Adam's participation, God provided Eve for Adam. And the same kind of thing is about to happen here. Don't assume, though, that Abram is unconscious here. He's in a state of heightened awareness And God is about to appear. But before he does, he tells Abram something. Uh, Verses 13 through 15, I'll read these uh, again. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for, as, for, uh, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried in a good old age. We have to read these verses from the vantage point of the original readers. And who were they? Remember, Genesis was written by Moses to the children of Israel. First two generations that came out of Egypt. And what was their challenge? Well, they were challenged. They they doubted just like Abraham did. They doubted that God would lead them to the promised land. So for them, what God is telling Abraham is entirely current. They had just been sojourners in a land not their own. They had just served there. They had just been afflicted for 400 years. And now God is bringing them to the land... Of promise. But like Abraham, they had the same kind of question. How do we know that we have done enough to keep our part of the covenant? How do we know that we'll actually make good on the promises of God? 
They doubted themselves just like Abram doubted himself. And then we come to one of the most wonderful verses, I think, in the whole Bible. We have here what's called a theophany. An appearance of God in some kind of form in which he interacts with man. This is what the verse says. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, can be translated billowing smoke, and a flaming torch, can be translated lightning, passed between these pieces. God here has presented his Shekinah glory in the form of something that Abraham would recognize. And and I think with these descriptions, we have phenomenological language. Moses is just describing them in something that we would recognize. But but God in his glory, it's like he, he, he forms a shape. And then alone, he passes through the pieces. What has God accomplished here? Well, he's secured the promise. When we go out to borrow money, there's a principle at stake, or a principle that has to be applied. The, the principle is this. The loan must be secured by something greater than the thing borrowed. Let's suppose that a young guy wants to buy a diamond ring, but he doesn't have the money and he doesn't have a house, but he has a truck. He can borrow the money for the ring against the deed or the title to his truck. So if he doesn't pay back the money for the ring, they don't take the ring, they take the truck. If God is to make a deal, and it's his word that's on the line, What can he use as security that is greater than himself? You got it. Nothing. There's nothing greater than himself by which God may swear by when he makes a deal. And since God can appeal to nothing greater than himself, he will secure his promise using himself as collateral. And that's exactly what Hebrews 6, we read it earlier. This is what Hebrews 6, 13 through 15 says. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. See, what God is saying here is that if either party fails to keep its obligation, its obligations, God himself will absorb the penalty for lawbreakers. Where does this leave Abraham? It leaves him blessed. Not on the basis of his work, but on the basis of God's work received by faith. He didn't do anything. He sat there and he watched 
God promise to take the punishment if he didn't obey God perfectly? He's completely blessed. Where does this leave the nation as they waited to inherit the land? Well, it leaves them confident in their God of promise who will give them the land possessed by their enemies. And by the way, where had the nation seen something like this before? The Shekinah glory of God that passed through the pieces? Numbers 9 tells us that God appeared to them in their wilderness wanderings after the time of the tabernacle, when that was established, as in the daytime, what? A cloud. And the cloud would come and hover above the tabernacle. And then when God wanted them to move, the cloud would lift and would move. How did the cloud appear to them at night? Like a pillar of fire. They would be able to hear this story and then at night look up into the night sky and say, There he is! The the, the same God who secured his promise with Abraham who said that we would enter the land. He's going to do it. And there he is. And they could follow the fire and receive the benefit of the blessing. Where does this leave us today? If we don't look at fire in the night sky to remember the promise, and we don't, where do we look? You got it. We look to the cross of Christ. Mark 15 talks about another dark day. And I don't think it's coincidence that this scene is described this way. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was there at the cross that the bank of God's justice foreclosed on sinners. And Jesus, the collateral of God was paid in our place. Listen to how Galatians 3 talks about this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. At the end of the day, Abraham was made right with God by faith in the promise of God. But even so, he didn't obey God perfectly. And at the end of the day, the nation didn't obey God perfectly. And at the end of the day, we haven't obeyed God perfectly either. But Jesus obeyed God perfectly. And when we put our faith in him, we, like Abraham, are made right with God on the basis of his work on our behalf. The certainty of God's blessing to Abraham was the possession of Abraham by faith, in spite of his doubt. 
and the guarantee of God in spite of hardship and trouble that was promised to Abraham. We're almost done, but I want to leave us with a couple of lessons from this passage. And actually, this is a very good New Year's passage because in dealing with doubt and in dealing with suffering and hardship, we're we're encountering some things as we think about them in relation to the promise that we're certain to encounter in 2015. Here's the first lesson. When in this new year I doubt God's purpose or his love for me or his interest in directing the circumstances of my life, I need to remember God will give me what I truly need. I need to remember God will give me what I truly need. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So if you're a young person looking for a spouse, for example... Don't try to work out the blessings for yourself by marrying somebody who doesn't love God like you do, for example. If you're a parent of a young family discouraged by the difficulty of bringing up kids to admire the Lord, don't quit. Keep pointing your children to Jesus. He'll give you what you truly need. If you're an adult child of an elderly parent, don't think that your faithfulness done in secret goes unnoticed by God. He'll give you what you truly need. He's the God of promise. Second lesson. This deals with suffering and hardship. When in this new year I experience suffering and hardship... I need to long for Christ's return. Have you noticed how we're like Abraham here? Abraham, he got the promise, and that promise was secured by a covenant, by God himself. But he didn't get to enjoy the benefits of the blessing, well, right away. There had to be suffering and hardship for his descendants Uh, before, well, they received the land. And and for us on the other side of the cross, we have received everything that we need in Christ. We, We understand this story in a way that Abraham couldn't possibly have understood. But we also haven't yet enjoyed the fullness of the blessing, have we? We still suffer. We still experience suffering and hardship. We deal with sin. Ah, but when Jesus comes back for us, whether we're dead or alive, when he comes, then we're going to experience the fullness of everything that God has guaranteed in himself. So if we experience sickness in 2015, don't doubt the blessing. He told us to expect hardship and trouble. Lean into this hardship and trouble and long for Christ's return. If we experience difficulty in family or work, 
don't be surprised. He told us we would experience this on this side of his return. Lean into it. Let it authenticate uh, our faith and trust in the God of promise and the God of blessing. Long for Christ's return. God's certain blessing is mine by faith in Jesus, but it won't be fully realized until I am with him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this wonderful, rich passage. We have just looked at a couple of angles of this, and it helps us understand what Jesus did on the cross and, and who you are. And yet we're people who struggle with sin. We struggle with doubt like Abraham did. We struggle with suffering and hardship and knowing what it means in light of the promise. And yet you are faithful to your promise. We ask that you would help us in this new year. Help us to lean into our trouble when it happens. And know that just as you made a promise to Abraham and just as Jesus died, you're going to come back for us. We have everything we need in you. And it's in the name of your precious Son we pray this. Amen.